Hope you're doing well. You can open up your Bible to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25. We're actually going to finish chapter 25 starting in verse 23 and go all the way through 26. So we'll go to 26.32. So starting in Acts 25.23, we'll go to Acts 26.32. And that's a lot, but hey, we started second service on time, so you know that I can do it uh, in one service. So, although, you know, it was a little fast. Anyway, so uh, we, we, uh, we stand and read the, the text together in honoring God's word, so let's stand. Uh, it's rather lengthy, so if you need to sit at any point, that's fine. At the very end, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You'll say, thanks be to God, um, signifying, of course, your thankfulness that God would give us his word, but also uh, signifying that you want to be obedient to the things that you hear today. Uh, and the challenges this morning will be uh, directed towards our desire to want to do evangelism and, and think and how we can do effective evangelism. So starting at verse uh, th- 23 in chapter 25, uh, we've, I'll bring us up to speed on what's going on uh, after we read it and, and pray. Starting verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death, and he has himself appealed to the emperor. I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write, for it seems to me unreasonable in, in, in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that, I, that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I am going to make my defense today, especially all, against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authorities commissioned of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. I appoint to you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen in me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, and they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with, with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. So I stand here testifying both to, to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, that's the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light, both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. 
But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether it's long or short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this text. I pray for myself, though it's lengthy, that I would be able to preach it in a concise manner that's uh, helpful and true. And Lord, that all of us would have our hearts and minds and affections stirred for Jesus, that we wouldn't find ourselves in awe of Paul. That's not what he would want. But in awe of Jesus, who changed Paul's life and has changed ours. And so, Holy Spirit, come now. Fill this room and fill this place. Cause us all to want to, uh, one, see Christ more fully, love Christ more deeply, uh, and be moved by him. And number two, because we've been moved by him, to want to tell others about Christ and what he's done in our life. We beg you now for you to come. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, we are... Uh, following Paul here, and as we've been following Paul, we've, brought, we've, we've been brought now uh, to Paul <clears throat> standing before Agrippa. So uh, this is the 58th, I think, sermon in the book of Acts over the last two years um, with little breaks. And uh, maybe we're going to get under 60, I doubt it. We'll probably be over 60. But we've, we've been a, lot, a long time in the book of Acts. And as we've been going through the book of Acts, we, especially when we got to chapter 13, we see Paul starting his missionary journeys. And he goes on those three missionary journeys. And as he finishes up that third mission journey and, and comes into Jerusalem, we've seen over the last few chapters that he's been arrested. And starting really in chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 20, and now 26, that he's had five different chances to uh, make a defense or make some kind of speech, long or short, to defend himself and try to get out of these circumstances where he's not in prison anymore because he had been free on those three missionary journeys and he wants to be free again to go proclaim Christ. But now he's been stuck, arrested in Jerusalem and Caesarea and been there for two years. Now, the, the uh, being kind of stuck on uh, <clears throat> house arrest hasn't stopped him from being a missionary. So just like he was a missionary on those missionary journeys, he's a missionary here as a prisoner. And so we've seen over the last, I don't know, five or so chapters how Paul has been a missionary uh, both in the, uh, in the jail but also before his judges, the different judges. And we have seen five different um, speeches. The first two were specifically more to Israel uh, in chapter 22 and then chapter 23. And the last three are more before Roman officials, uh, chapter 24, 25, and now 26. The first one in 24 was to Felix, the governor of Caesarea. The second one was to Festus, the second governor in our study of, of Caesarea. And now Festus has brought in King Agrippa, uh, who's come down. And we are now seeing Paul before Agrippa here his fifth speech and third uh, speech before some kind of Roman official. Uh, and so we finished it last week. And as we finished it last week's sermon, I said that last week's sermon was the kind of the, the trail to the mountaintop. And the mountaintop was this week of which we just read, which is Paul's uh, big, huge speech before Agrippa. And I said that we would summit the mountain today. Now, uh, by summiting the mountain, I'm not saying that we're going to have a mountaintop experience in the sermon. That's not necessarily what I was promising. But instead, uh, what I'm trying to help you see is that this particular speech of Paul, uh, which is his fifth speech in all in these last five or so chapters, and the third time that Luke records Paul's uh, conversion. We saw it in Acts chapter 9, and then we've seen it again, and now we're seeing it again in 26. This particular uh, recording of Paul's conversion in the book of Acts is 
the most lengthy one of all of them and the most detailed. And so it's really uh, got a lot of it jam-packed before a king where Paul is imploring a king to bow his knee to the real king, Jesus. Uh, there's a lot going on in the text. And it is a, a, a mountaintop of information which we were brought to from last week where we dealt with Festus and we got all the way to where in verse 22, Agrippa hears from Festus that there's this prisoner, Paul, and you got to hear it. And you can see in verse 22 where Agrippa says, I want to hear from this man myself. I want to hear from this man myself. And that brings us to verse 23 where Agrippa hears from Paul himself. Stott, John Stott, says this, Paul's trial before Agrippa is the longest and the most elaborate of all of them. Luke sketches the scene with graphic detail, and Paul's defense in this particular time is more polished in structure and language than the others, probably because Paul's done it a lot now, (laughs) in our recording, at least the fifth time, so he's certainly getting more polished. Anytime you say something five times, you get better at it, but also probably Luke's present compared to the other five. He's certainly present here, and he he expands on it uh, in a little bit more kind of long fashion, and we get a lot here. Uh, And it's clear as you read this particular particular, um, speech that the main person that Paul is talking to is King Agrippa. There are a lot of people there, but in verse 2, I make this thing before you, King Agrippa. In verse 7, O King. Uh, In verse 13, O King. In 19, O King Agrippa. And so there's over and over and over and over, O King Agrippa, O King Agrippa. He's talking directly to him uh, while they're all there. So as we're looking at this this big piece of scripture, uh, pericope, if you want to call it, in verses 25 through 23, all the way to 2632, I've kind of put it in five different blocks. So we're going to start uh, with the first block, which is just one verse. Uh, You can go ahead and put up number one, Paul before Agrippa. The first one is is Agrippa's kingly entrance. Now, verse 23 might not seem like very much. It's just talking about the big pompom circumstance where King and his sister Bernice and maybe a little more come in. Uh, And so, but I wanted to make sure we highlighted that because it is important to see the juxtaposition of, in the contrast of King Agrippa and all his uh, pompom circumstance and all the dignitaries and little meek and mild prisoner Paul. With hardly anything. So you can see in verse 23, on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. And then Festus says, bring Paul in. Stott says it this way. Um, According to tradition, Paul was only a little fellow and unprepossessing in appearance, balding with beetle brows, hook nose, bandy legs, yet full of grace. And so you've got all these entrances of all the great pomp. It actually says with great pomp, that's the Greek word fantasia, which is just like fantastical things that are going on. Festus is rolling out the red carpet for, for uh, Agrippa. They have their purple robes. They have their gold crowns. They're walking in. The dignitaries, all the important people are coming. And then after that, Paul, you can come in. And so the juxtaposition is all these great people of the city, great people of the city. And then here, here comes in little Paul, balding, beetle brows, hook nose, bandy legs, wearing neither crown nor gown, but only handcuffs and perhaps some kind of plain prisoner's tunic. And so you see this major contrast, right, that, that Luke's trying to build up. And then Stott says this, but Paul nevertheless dominated the court with his quiet Christ-like dignity and confidence. So you would think with all these dignitaries and little meek-mouthed Paul that it's going to be, Paul's going to be cowardly and, and overwhelmed, but it's the reverse where he stands tall and brave and bold and and proclaims with, I mean, amazing language uh, what's going on. When I always hear, this is just a side note, when I always hear Paul being kind of uh, uh, described as balding and beetle brows and hook nose and bandy legs, uh, if, I may be too old and you may not know who this, but I always think of Gargamel from the Smurfs. Uh, I would ha- I would, you can Google that later. But he's Gargamelish looking, uh, but, he's, but he's Christ-like, and he's not make-believe and doesn't have a satanic cat as his little sidekick. But anyway... Um, Back to the text. So here, and, and point number one, we have Agrippa's kingly entrance uh, in verse 23. And then uh, we get to verse 24, down to 27, the end of chapter 25. And that second little section of th- that we're looking at in, in the outline would be the introduction of the case by Festus before we get to Paul. Now, Point number three, we have Roman numeral, I say Roman numeral three is really the kind of massive meat and potatoes of the text today, uh, where we look at Paul's uh, defense, and that starts in verse one and goes all the way to verse 18. That's the big thing. But nevertheless, Roman number one is the, the entrance of the great king, and Roman number two is where Festus stands up 
and, and kind of lets everybody know the case that's going on. And, and, and the case that he has, uh, that he makes in verses uh, 24 through 27, as he tries to summarize the case before Paul, has some truth elements. It's truthy. It's truthy, but it also has some falsehood. If we want to be relevant, 28, 18, we'd say it also has fake news. So, uh, so there's, there's truth and falsehood here. You can read it here in 24. And he said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer, but I found that he has done nothing deserving death. So far, you're on a roll. You're telling the truth. That's true. The Jews have twice petitioned for Paul's death. Uh, and they've tried to do it, and also Festus has not been able to find, neither has Felix, neither has uh, uh, Claudius Lysias back in Jerusalem, found any reason to, to find him guilty of any capital offense. That's true. Now we get into the truthy part, the, the, the falsehood part, not the exact truth part. And he says, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him, and here it is. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you, O king, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that we might have examined him and I might have something to write. For it seems unreasonable, sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. This is not exactly true. Nothing definite to write to his majesty about Paul. That's not exactly true. And could not specify any charges against him. Not true. The Jews have gone out of their way to specify lots of charges. That Paul has desecrated the temple. That Paul's, we've, done all, we've seen all these things. As a matter of fact, we saw last week that there's a plethora of charges that have been lauded against Paul. So what, what he does not lack is charges. What Festus lacks is evidence. You can see that in 25.7. 25-7, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul, bringing many and serious charges against Paul, dot, 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 that they could not prove. So there's no lack of charges here. He could have been honest and say, there's all these kinds of charges, and these are the definite charges, but what he lacks is not charges, but evidence to substantiate the charges. And so... Um, this is the, the introduction case by Festus. And again, we, we can see his, his political maneuvering here with his language. And, and, and lays out what would be the, the case of Paul where there's truth but not, not all truth. Nevertheless, brings us to 26, uh, 1 through 18, which is Roman numeral 3. You can see this is where Paul makes his defense. Now, um, in Roman numeral 3 and in Roman numeral 3 only... Well, I have some subpoints. You can go ahead and put up number three. Uh, Paul makes his defense. I'll have some subpoints because, as I said, this is really the meat and potatoes of the entire uh, text. And so there'll be four different parts of Paul's sermon that I want you to get in. I could even go further in subpoints, but I, I don't want to kill you. You can just listen to those and know that they're there. Um, but uh, first, we're going to see here, um, before we get to the meat and potatoes, we see this little intro. This is not. This is not a first part, but Paul, uh, before he starts, you can see this little intro in 26, 1 through 3 is the little intro. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself, and then Paul stretches out his hand. This, isn't, uh, this is actually in, in some kind of honorable way, like, thank you, I appreciate it, and he made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All these things are true, and all these things are Paul, um, as, as he's before the king, being respectful to the king. He means all these things uh, sincerely. Uh, he even, in the Greek, uses kind of a root word of the word benevolent. He causes him calls him in some kind of way benevolent, begging for him to listen, uh, stretches out his hands in an honorable way. So he's saying all these things to uh, show respect to the king. Uh, now, as he's talking to Agrippa, we have to realize that Paul has to be somewhat nervous. This is King Agrippa whose familial line, uh, dating back, uh, had tried to kill Jesus and then also beheaded John the Baptist. And also, so his, his father's fathers, they tried to kill Jesus, beheaded John the Baptist, had arrested Peter, had killed James. And now Paul, in this kind of family line, is standing before this next Agrippa saying, I'm going to make my defense. So it has to be somewhat nerve-wracking knowing the history of all the Agrippas before this Agrippa that uh, they've killed and tried to kill a lot of people. But nevertheless, Paul stands before him and we can see as he starts off, rises to the occasion and, and proclaims boldly uh, Christ and even 
appeals to this particular king, Agrippa, to bow the knee to King Jesus. We're going to see that later on where he is boldly calling him to repentance. Amazing. But anyway, uh, and just a side note, I'll try to throw these little side note applications for you in. Uh, In the way that Paul approaches Agrippa respectfully and doing evangelism, we need to do that. Whether people are great or whether people are kings or whether people are not kings, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from, we, we approach them in the same way, respectfully, loving, carefully, uh, in a way that shows that Christ has really changed us, and so therefore we care about them dearly. So do evangelism in the same way, respectfully. So here we get to the first main part of Paul's speech. So we're looking at Paul making his defense, and it's in really four main parts. The first part is in verses 4 through 8, so you can put it up. And in this first part of his defense, starting in verse 4, Paul describes his upbringing as a Pharisee. That's an interesting place to start. So I'm going to start from the beginning. I was born, like like Paul, man, you really going to go all the way back to when you were a kid? Yes, he is. And you're thinking, man, he really is going to be thorough. Yes, he is. But he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant by doing this. He's trying to make a point. He's trying to get uh, Agrippa and all the Jews that are there to know who he is and remember who he is and know who he was as a child. And so he starts out as a Pharisee. And we'll, I'll show you in just a second just exactly why it is absolutely so brilliant that he starts from the beginning as a Pharisee. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. So starting as his youth, and you can see in verse 5 that they have known for a long time if they're willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, here it is, I have lived as a Pharisee. So he starts by helping them see that he's a Pharisee. Now, Paul's Uh, geographically north of Jerusalem. He's in Caesarea. But all these people are from Jerusalem that are bringing these charges. Paul was from Tarsus, born in Tarsus, but then when they realize this kid's brilliant, they bring him down from Tarsus, down to Jerusalem, and he's uh, educated by the famous Gamaliel. Now, Paul, by this time, has reached an old age. All these people that are in Caesarea who are Jewish that have come up there are also advanced in age, which means all of them grew up in Jerusalem among each other. And they knew who Paul was. They were contemporaries of Paul. They were probably going to the little Hebrew school with Paul and stealing his Cheetos and look at little bald-headed Paul like we're going to beat him up. They saw Paul advance in front of them in front of education. Paul got to be educated by Gamaliel. They saw Paul in this realm of Judaism excel beyond all of them into powerful positions. And so they are well acquainted. That's why it says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. All of these people have known me for a long, 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 long time. That's a big deal. That the people bringing the charges have known Paul and seen him from a boy grow to who he is. It's not like he's some random guy that they don't know and all of a sudden he's saying stuff they've never heard. They've known him for a long time. So Paul when he's doing this, helps them see, because they, they were also, some of them, Pharisees. He says, you've seen my manner of life, and you see that I came from the strictest party of our religion, Judaism, as a Pharisee, just to try to help us get what's going on here. So in Christianity, you know, this is a, an illustration kind of correlation to help us understand. So in Christianity, you know, there's different denominations. You know, there was Baptists and Presbyterians and uh, Church of Christ, are somewhat more charismatic, and whatever. There's lots of denominations, right? And usually those denominations are kind of uh, made by theological positions. Baptists love baptism, you know, etc. As you keep going, people who are charismatic are more spirit-filled, and they believe in those kinds of things. The whole point is our, our, our distinctions are made by theological beliefs, but we're all still Christians, right? Same thing here. They're all still Jews, but they have different parties of their Judaism from Pharisees to Sadducees to Essenes to Zealots. Zealots are really zealous and they want to kill the government for taking over their, their, uh, their city because this is supposed to be God's city and we're supposed to have our king, not this king. Pharisees, which is one of the strictest parts of the party of Judaism, is, I mean, they are righteous. They live in the most righteous manner whatsoever. So Paul's saying, you who are Pharisees also, I, I came up as a Pharisee just like you. So that means as a Pharisee, and you're a Pharisee, we have tons of common beliefs in, uh, in our system together. He's, there's lots of them, but he's going to zoom in on two of those things. This is why it's brilliant. 
Whenever he's making his defense before Agrippa, still trying to get the Jews uh, who are listening, he's going to zoom in on the fact that since a youth they've known him and that he's a Pharisee. And by doing that, he's going to uh, associate and make them realize, oh, we did know Paul from a long time. We do have a lot of similar things. And there are two things that we really believe together as Pharisees. And it's brilliant because after he does that and he keeps going, he's making them think, if I believe these two things like Paul, and then what he says that happened to him is really true, I need to change my belief and believe in Jesus. So he's brilliant here. And he says, the two things that they have in common is this, um, that they have uh, belief number one in common that they believe in a coming Messiah that has been prophesied and told in the Old Testament and that everybody should be actively looking for this Messiah right now. That's the common belief that Paul has with them. Belief number two, we believe in the resurrection of the dead. And he, he addresses both of those in the text here. I grew up as a Pharisee and now here I stand on trial because of my hope, here it is, and the promise made by God to our, to our fathers. You who are Pharisees out here, remember that promise in the Old Testament that we're supposed to be looking for a Messiah to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night? For this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. So we have a hope of the coming Messiah from the Old Testament. You Pharisees out here, you have that hope too. Now he's going to talk about his, his uh, interaction with Jesus in just a second and help them see that Messiah we're looking for is Jesus. But he wants, he wants to set the foundation and the common ground that we're supposed to be looking at. That's belief number one. The belief number two that we have in common is, right there in verse 8, why is, it, why is the thought incredible that any of you believe that God, raises from the de- that God raises people from the dead? We also believe that God raises people from the dead. And so as we look at those two promises and beliefs that they have in common, John Stott and belief number one regarding the coming Messiah, he said it was surely anomalous or rare, therefore, that he should not be on trial for this hope in God's promise to the fathers, which they had shared, namely that God would send his Messiah to rescue and redeem his people. So the Pharisees who were there, just like Paul, should be looking for this Messiah. And he helps them see, hey, we're just the same. Except I have this experience, and as I tell it to you, which we're going to get into our next, in our third section, it changed the way I believe, and it's supposed to absolutely change the way you believe. And the second thing is, uh, since he believes that Jesus is the Messiah... That also means that he believes that Jesus has been raised back to life. That belief number two, God raises from the dead. The first one that he raised from the dead was Jesus, and therefore we all can be spiritually raised from the dead. And so it shouldn't be incredible or fantastical to think that God raises from the dead. As a matter of fact, because I was confronted on the road to Damascus by the guy who was supposed to be dead, but he came to me and spoke to me, means he's not dead, he's alive. God raised him from the dead, and if God raised him from the dead, that has massive implications like, oh my goodness, he's the Messiah. So point number one, or part number one that he starts with, he goes all the way back and says, I'm a Pharisee just like you, and so if Paul's going to make this convincing case, he must first establish that they've been looking for a Messiah, and that he believes that Jesus is Messiah, and that God raised us from the dead, so Jesus has been raised from the dead. And these are two important features that he believed as a Pharisee, and he shared in common with the Pharisees there. And he opens the, with this uh, opening statement to woo his listeners in and set that foundation and build a strong case. And, as we already know, in verse 3, it says to, to, to King uh, Agrippa, you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews Agrippa's tracking with him. He's understanding everything that's going on. So he's certainly not just going after the Jews there's hearts, but also Agrippa. By the way, uh, we, we know that because he says in verse 29, I want everybody to become a Christian. Not just you, Agrippa, but everybody. So that's the first thing. Um, he talks about his past and who he was before Christ, specifically as a Pharisee. We want to make a real-life application just for our own evangelism. Paul freely talks about his past. Talks about his shortcomings, talks about his failures. Uh, we should do the same. Don't be afraid to tell people about who you were before Christ. It's absolutely legitimate to do. It's a good thing for people to see that even though as a Christian now, you have your life totally put together, right? They think, oh, your life's perfect. Look, you're a Christian. Everything goes right for you. And it might be great for you. And things might be going really well, or it might not. But a lot of times people perceive Christians to have their life put together. So therefore, it's great, I think, and wooing them to, to Christ to say, I was a mess 
before Jesus. I might even be a mess now, but here's my life before Christ. And here is some of the things that, by God's grace, I've been saved from into salvation. It's perfectly fine and legitimate to tell people what it was like before you believed. Um, your discretion on detail, on, on, on how much detail you give to them and who, and the, who you're with and gender things you have to think about, but nevertheless, perfectly legitimate. Paul does that and sets an example. Now, we get to part two, which is verse 9 through 11. Verse 9 through 11. In this second part, he moves into uh, his description as a Pharisee uh, as an adult. The first section is, this is how I was growing up as a youth as a Pharisee, and since that's how I grew up, this is how I live now as a Pharisee pre-Christ. And so point number two, he describes his fanatical persecution of Christ as a Pharisee. He wants them to see the implications of growing up as a Pharisee and what it meant in the way that he lived in verses 9 through 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And you can see as he ends in verse 11, in raging fury I lived. So as we're looking at this, there's some things we want, we want to make sure that Paul's trying to help them understand, which is that as a Pharisee, it was his solemn duty as a Pharisee to defend the name of God at all costs. That's what he believed. As a Pharisee, at least for him, all Pharisees should do this, but for Paul, it was his solemn oath to defend the name of God at all costs. And the way that he did that, so for Paul, defending the name of God at all costs meant, verse 9, opposing the names and claims of Jesus at all costs. That's what he says. I myself am convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. So before he was a Christian, he really thought he was living for God, and that meant for him doing everything he can to destroy Jesus, his followers, the thought, and every ideal that comes with it. And we can see as he, as he basically what he's trying to help them see is this, is, is Paul's trying to show that radical obedience to God is all that he's capable of. That's what he wants them to understand. Now, before a Christian, it was wicked. He's killing Christians. But nothing changed in the life of Paul and that radical obedience to God when he became a Christian. As he became a believer, radical obedience to God is all that he's capable of. And that's important for them to see because this experience he has on the road to Damascus, now he, all he wants to do is obey Jesus to the fullest by telling them to come to know Christ. So radical obedience to God is all he's capable of. Wouldn't that be amazing if that's the way that we lived our lives? If that's how people thought and described FUD or fill in your blank, fill in your name. Radical obedience to God is all that guy or girl is capable of. That's just the way he lives. That's just the way she lives. That's the way Paul lived. Now, before Jesus, it was wicked because he opposed the name of Jesus at all costs by, you can see it in verses 9 through 11, opposing the name of Jesus, locking up the saints in prison, putting them to death by casting votes against them, punishing them in the synagogues, trying to make them blaspheme, and in fury he persecuted even out of Jerusalem into foreign cities. Big, huge list of the way he did it. Um, now, why does Paul want them to understand that radical obedience to God is the only thing that he's capable of? Is because if that's the truth, then whenever he has this uh, road to Damascus experience, that's still the truth of him now. That as a Christ follower, following the real God, not the fake God of the Pharisees, the hypocritical God of the Pharisees, is radical obedience to God is all he is capable of and still following right now, and he has found the truth in Christ. So the second thing we, we see is Paul describes his fanatical persecution, not to highlight that killing Christians is great, but to explain who he is and that he's just continuing in the same mental processes. But now, since he's met Christ, he's not opposing God. He's actually doing work for God. He's, instead of, as it says, verse 9, opposing the name of Jesus, he is spreading the name of Jesus. Now, what we're going to see here in uh, the next section, starting in verse 12, is where Paul describes his remarkable conversion and commissioning. So you can put up number three. You can put up number three. Boom. Right there. Paul describes his remarkable conversion and commissioning. That's verses 12 through 18. Of all the texts and all the things that we're looking at today, this is like, this is the summit of the mountain. This is it. I even have more subcategories that I won't put on here when we're talking about this, but there's a lot 
in these particular sections right here um, as he's looking at uh, his description of his conversion and commissioning. Now, when we see in verses 12 through 18 about his conversion and commissioning, here's the extra. (laughs) So 12 through 15 is his conversion. 16 through 18 is the commissioning. He talks about how he's converted, but that's not the most important thing to him. He wants them to know how he's converted. I mean, it's pretty amazing, right? Jesus came down from the sky and shined a light so bright from his body, it was brighter than the sun and from that moment, I realized that, that Jesus was God. And you, you hear that, and you're like, what? That's amazing. And Paul's like, okay, but that's not the most important part. 12 through 15, my conversion's not the most important. Instead, 16 through 18's the most important part, because after that, Jesus told me to do something. And that's what I want you, King Agrippa, and all Jews here to concentrate on, is the thing he told me to do. So the conversion's important in 12 through 15. The commissioning in 16 through 18, that's... That's the top of the mountain when it comes to the message that he has. So here we can see verse 12 in its connection. That means in the connection of being a Jew trying to kill people. I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests and elders. And at midday, O king, talking to Agrippa, on the way I saw a light from heaven. As Crowder says, I saw the light. He did see the light and it blinded him. Brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. That's That's really bright. That's life-changing bright. That changes things for the rest of your life. If that happened to you today after dinner, after church, and you're going to hit up some Arby's, and all of a sudden a man shines from the the sky, and it's brighter than the sun, you're not going to stop talking about that for the rest of your life. It will change your life. It's not going to happen. But nevertheless, well, maybe it will, but probably like 99.9999% it's not. Jesus isn't going to appear to you that way. But seriously, that changes everything, right? And he says to him, uh, he fell to the ground. And I heard him saying to me in a Hebrew voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? We've already talked about how he's been persecuting me. You persecute the church. When you persecute, when you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. He says, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Which we all know what that means, right? Because we're all farmers in the first century. Um, Chuck Swindoll, goads were typically made of slender pieces of timber, blunt on one end where you held it, pointed on the other, and farmers used the pointed end to urge a stubborn ox into motion. Occasionally, dumbly, the beast would kick against the goad. The more the ox kicked, the more likely the goad would stab him in the flesh of his leg, causing even greater pain. So don't kick against the goads. And he's just saying, Paul, you're kicking against me, and it's causing you even greater pain. In other words, Paul, stop killing Christians. Submit to me. You're hurting yourself. And follow me now. That's basically what he's saying. Submit to my authority, Paul, and come to me. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? And he says, who are you, Lord? Now, I know in English we have our capital L there, and automatically you just say, he automatically knows it's God. This is curious. This just could mean sir. He could just mean like, sir, who are you? could just mean that. Um, it doesn't mean that he doesn't become a Christian, but it doesn't mean that in this moment he acknowledges Jesus as Lord. It just, he could just be sir. And he says, uh, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, in this moment, when he says, when he's confronted with the resurrected Lord, and Jesus tells him who he is, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Uh, When Jesus appears and blinds him, Paul has a moment where he is absolutely overcome. Overcome with the uh, knowledge of what's going on. There's no other way that we could conceive that what's happening besides Paul is mentally overcome. Paul is a very smart man. And when he, Paul knew who Jesus was, okay? Let's not, let's not think that Paul just kind of heard of this guy, Jesus, and he heard that it was bad. Paul lived there his whole life. No one in that, in that time period in the first century in the Middle East didn't know who Jesus was. People, there were crowds and scores and scores of thousands. So when Jesus was walking around and healing people and doing stuff, Paul knew that he was doing all the things. He just thought that Paul, uh, Paul just thought that Jesus was not of God. But no doubt, he knew who he was. He had heard the stories. He had heard of the death. He had heard of all these things. He just believed with his heart of hearts, this guy is an imposter. And all of a sudden, he, appear, he appears to him. And a couple things go through Paul's mind when he says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. The first thing is, I thought he was dead. That means he's alive. Oh my goodness. Back to what we're trying to see. God raises people from the dead. Jesus is alive. 
I've been looking for the coming Messiah. Jesus is the coming Messiah. And so all this kind of hits him at once. Everything that I've been doing for my whole life has been a lie. All of the things I've been doing have been opposing God. And it has to just hit him like a ton of bricks. So he's absolutely overcome because all he wants to do is have radical obedience to God. And in that moment, all he's realized is he's done is radical uh, desecration of God. And so he's overcome, no doubt. He realizes in this moment, everything I've done has been in vain. And after that, when he realizes that Christ is the Messiah, and he hears this voice from the sky that he really is, the second thing has to happen in his head, which is, all the people that I have killed, murdered, tried to get to blaspheme, all those people were God's people. And I've been killing God's people rather than adding to God's people. And so in this moment, he's got to be overcome when he realizes that this Jesus who was crucified, who Paul knew that, and he realizes that he has come back from the dead and he's alive, that the voice of the sky is telling him that he's the Messiah, and Paul realizes this man is the Messiah, and I can no longer kill the people of God. Instead, I have to add to the people of God. And all of this once clicked in his heart and his mind and his life, and that radical obedience to God that all he ever knew, now he is a radical Christ follower, obeying God the Father through the Son. And now Paul is standing before Agrippa, making this case to convince them, Agrippa and everyone there, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And so, in this moment, he radically exalts who Christ is. And in your evangelism, by the way, as you tell your own stories, always remember to radically exalt Christ. Always remember to radically exalt Christ. This is what he does. Uh, He down-talks himself to the uh, advantage of being able to exalt Jesus. He talks about how he killed people and then because of that, Christ revealed himself, and now all he wants to do is uh, see more people come to know Christ. So he talks about his commission, and then that, but that's not the most important Paul. For Paul, the convergence is absolutely huge, but it's the commissioning that Jesus gives him that Paul wants to emphasize. And he says, I am the one who is persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet. It's interesting. I, I, I want to go back and study this now because as I read it uh, out loud in first and second service, the word stand jumps out at the page a few times. There's, there's a few stands. He says, now stand. And again, he says it over in 22, so I stand. And he's saying over here, so I'm standing. I, I want to go back and restudy the, the three, at least three stands that Paul, uh, Luke records of Paul saying and try to see if there's something to that as well. But that's just me talking. Anyway, back to this. So he says, but rise and stand upon your feet. Now, Paul was right at first here to fall down on his face. No doubt about it. His hubris had been destroyed. His overflowing pride had been absolutely destroyed. And he had been humbled like very few people in the world. Like very few people are humbled this way by Jesus. That he appears to them. But nevertheless, he was. But Jesus gives him the first command, stand up. And Paul does. And here, like an Old Testament prophet, he tells him to stand and go and be sent to preach the word. And just like Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Paul stands and goes and preaches the word like an Old Testament prophet. And just like an Old Testament prophet experienced persecution and suffering, thus so will Paul. And so here we come to the commissioning. You can see, but, I, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose. Here it is. He tells him three things that he wants him to do as a commissioned uh, witness. Three things. The, this Christ commission of Paul has really, in verses uh, 16 through 18, three major points. The first one you can see is that he's appeared him, he's appeared to appoint Paul as a servant and as a witness. For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, as a witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those which will appear to you. So when, it, when Paul commissioned, when Jesus commissions Paul, he tells him that you're a servant and a witness. We have also been commissioned by Jesus, John 20, 21. So as the Father sent me, so I send you to be a, witness, a servant and a witness. Which means, whenever you evangelize, you have to witness to the things that Christ has done, but you're also equally called to be a servant of people. And whenever you are serving people, you are also equally called to be a witness to the things that Christ has done in your life. It's not one or the other. It's both. We are witnesses and servants. We are servants of those who are great and those who are small. No matter who they are, we serve them. We love them. We care for them. We meet their physical needs. But we also witness to what Christ has done. We tell them the truths of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. We, we tell them what Christ has done for them. We witness and we serve. And 
In this commissioning, he tells him that he does that, that he is doing that as well. That's the first part of the commission. The second part of the commission is in verse 17 where he says he's going to rescue and deliver him from both Jews and Gentiles. Um, in the commissioning, he says, I'm going to deliver you from, you, that deliver can also be rescue, deliver, rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. So he's, uh, basically what he's saying here is, Jews and Gentiles are going to try to kill you, and I'm going to rescue you and deliver you. It doesn't mean that he'll never die. We see that he does. But what it does mean is, uh, it doesn't guarantee that Paul won't experience suffering, but because all of God's prophets suffer, it does mean this, that the God-ordained work that Paul is going to do will never be disrupted as long as the sovereign hand of God is causing those things to bring about. And when Paul's work is done, uh, it'll be over. But as long as God has work for him to do, it will happen. And so he says, I'm going to deliver you and rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles. And we know that's the case. If you reread Acts, both Jews and Gentiles try to kill Paul. The third part of his commission is this. Um, which just, by the way, if we made an application for that, it's the same thing for us. God has ordained works that you should do, Ephesians 2.10, that you should walk in them, and you will fulfill every single one of them until God calls you home if you walk in them. The Lord will make those things happen. Anyway, the third thing that he tells him is that I'm going to send you to open their eyes that they turn from darkness to light. Now, when we're looking at this third section where Paul makes his defense before King Agrippa, one of the most important things that Paul wants Agrippa to know is this, because he's familiar with things that are Jewish, is he's trying to help them see, hey, Agrippa, and all you Jews, I'm an apostle. That's a big deal. That word carries a lot of weight in the first century, and he's wanting him to know, Jesus has made me an apostle, not just a witness, but an apostle, and very few people get to be an apostle. Nobody in the 21st century is an apostle. They can call themselves apostle, but only 12 have been to apostles and Paul. And that's it. Only they get to be the apostles, and they get to declare what scripture, and that's it. First century and first century only, and Paul is standing before them claiming um, apostleship, and he says it right here in this particular verse where he says, um, in very end of 17, I am sending you. Sending apostoleo, the, the Greek word comes from apostle, where Jesus is basically saying, I apostle you, Paul. I apostle you. I'm sending you as an apostle. And so he wants him to understand that he is an apostle. So the third part of the commissioning is that Jesus is sending Paul as an apostle to open the eyes of those uh, that are in darkness, to, to bring them out of the power of Satan and to the power of God. You can see it in verse 18. I send you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness and from light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now when we get to uh, this verse 18, we really see, even for our own hearts and our own sakes and our own minds and our own thoughts, uh, and it's a great chance for us to pause and rest in the beauty of the gospel that's being explained here. Paul's saying that in the gospel, this has happened to us. We haven't had just a mere intellectual enlightenment in the gospel for those that are believers. That's not what has happened. But instead, we have had that, but we had much more. We've also had a conversion happen to us. We were, uh, we, we've had, as it, as it says from darkness, an environment change. We've moved from darkness to light. We've had an environment change around us where we're no longer in darkness but in light. But we've also had an allegiance change where we were following the powers of Satan and now we follow the powers of God. We've had an environment change. We've had an allegiance change. And now, since that's happened, we've been liberated from Satan and darkness and now brought into light and into God. We have not just had an intellectual enlightenment. We've been completely converted. And when that's happened, we reap the benefits of being a believer in Christ. Now, here's for you to rest in the gospel. There's two benefits for us in verse 18 that are just um. There's multiple benefits, right? We could go all over the scriptures and find them all. But here there's two. That let's just rest in these two. One, the forgiveness of your sins. See it in verse 18. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And as we're looking at these, I want you to make sure you note the individual and the communal aspects of the gospel. Individual. Forgiveness of sins. Every sin you commit. Past, present, last night, and in the future. Every sin you commit, how you interact with your parents, how you interact with people at work, how you uh, talk about people, what, every thought you have, 
all of it, forgiveness of sins. You have been completely washed clean. The individual aspect of the gospel Paul highlights here is no more weight of sin on your shoulders. Forgiveness of sin completely. But he also has this communal aspect of the gospel he highlights where he says, and you also receive a place among those who are sanctified in faith in me. In the 21st century in America, everything's individually. We're all mavericks, right? We're all ruler of our own island. I need, I need to be saved, and then I can just do whatever I want. And that's just so contrary to first century thought in Christian life. You are saved, and you are ushered into a family. You are brought into a family, and you don't have the option or the right to say, I can do whatever I want. You are brought into a family both now and for eternity. You are here, and you are absolutely commanded by God to be in a community, in a church. Whether you're in this church or whatever church you are, you are you're supposed to live in a gospel-centered community where you love one another, care for one another, practice all the one another's with each other and even reach Christ with each other. And he says, you have been brought to a place among those who are sanctified. For some, that sounds absolutely terrible. <laughs> you know, for the introverts like me, you think, oh, I gotta be around people. Yes, you do, FUD. Too bad, right? That's the way it is. And for some who have always desperately just wanted a family, it sounds like absolutely glorious uh, news. And it's the truth for all of us. No matter where you fall, whether you can't stand being around people or all you've ever wanted is a family in your life because you never had one, there's a communal aspect to the goodness of these benefits of being a believer in Jesus. Not only forgiveness of sin, which is glorious, but you also, you take a place among those who are sanctified. You have a family always, not just here, but for eternity. We'll be with our sons and da- God's sons and daughters, our brothers and sisters in the faith forever. We find our place in a family. And this is amazingly, amazingly good news. If I'm going to make an application for evangelism, it's this. Never neglect of telling people the benefits of the gospel. Don't just tell them the facts the benefits. There's great benefits of the gospel. Here's two. There's multiple. There's hundreds in the Bible. And so as Paul concludes part three of his defense, to, especially towards King Agrippa, he's wanting some things to be uh, absolutely ingrained into Agrippa's mind. He wants, to know, he wants Agrippa to know exactly what Christ has done for him. That he's commissioned him. He's converted him and commissioned him. He wants Agrippa to know that radical obedience to God is all that he's capable of. He wants Agrippa to know that he has been apostled, made an apostle and sent by Jesus to do these things. He wants Agrippa to know that he must proclaim the gospel. And he wants Agrippa to know that, hey, Agrippa, you also can be saved by God. And he's going to launch into that starting in verse 19 through 23. He's starting the beginnings of this straight on appeal to Agrippa to believe. You can see it in verse 19 through 23. The fourth part of Paul's speech, uh, what, put up number four. I didn't say number four, did I? Um, Paul's response to Christ's commission. Yeah, this, is, this isn't the fourth part of his speech. This is the fourth part of, of his appeal. When he looks at Agrippa and he turns it and he's wanting to say, address towards Agrippa, therefore, O King Agrippa. And you can see, if you just know Apostle Paul, he's going to get to, therefore, believe Agrippa. And so he starts the wording and he gets down the, the road. And right when he gets to, Right here, therefore, right before he gets to say therefore, you can see Festus kind of stick his face in there in verse 24 and say, Paul, you're crazy, and interrupts him and throws him all off track. We're going to get to that, but you can, see, you can see in verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus with a loud voice said, Paul, you're out of your mind. And Paul's like, oh, you messed me up. I had a good roll here going from 19 to 20, 23, and you messed me up. He's going to get back on track, but watch. Here's, here's, the, here's the roll to, the, to where he's trying to, to preach the God, or proclaim to uh, Agrippa to believe. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not, not disobedient to the heavenly voice. I was obedient to Jesus, is what he's saying, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to the Gentiles that they should, here it is, what should they do? <clears throat> you should do, Agrippa. Repent and turn. Metanoia and, um, what was that Greek word? Uh, basically, they both mean turn. So he, he uses this double kind of meaning to them, saying that you should repent and turn. Trying to help him see that both of these things are necessary whenever uh, coming to Christ. In verse 20, I can't find it. So anyway, uh, it doesn't matter. Metanoia and turn festeo or something like that to God. Performing deeds and keeping with repentance. So this is, uh, 
that like John the Baptist, JTB in Matthew 3, 8, that you should bear fruit in keeping with repentance whenever you come to know Christ, that it's not the good works and, and bearing fruit that actually saves you. It's because you've been saved, you, you do bear fruit. He says, to repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with your repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, they, I have had the help that comes from God. That's awesome, Colossians 1.29. So to stand here testifying to both small and to great. That's you, King Agrippa, saying nothing what the prophets and Moses would come, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses had come to pass. That, here it is, Jesus Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, which I've already hinted to, no one should think that's crazy, that he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. Therefore, King Agrippa, believe. Like that's, you, you can see it's coming. And then he's interrupted. He's interrupted here in verse 24 by Festus. But before we get to the interruption, here we see Paul uh, preaching, saying that he's preached the gospel all over, Damascus, Jerusalem, Judea, the Gentiles all over. He's only relied the help that comes from God. We should only do that whenever we do evangelism. He's, he's the entire time stuck to the resurrected Christ and boldly he's about to proclaim uh, who Christ is to King Agrippa and beg for him to come to Christ. But boom, here comes 24, which brings us to our fourth Roman numeral, interruptions and reactions. There's three here. Um, the second one is where Paul makes the appeal. So Festus sticks his nose in there and kind of frustrates. I think he frustrates Paul. He's just about to make the appeal. And so interruption or reaction one uh, here, when we say interruptions or reactions, uh, reaction number one, it's an interruption by Festus. So Paul, Festus says something to Paul. Paul answers him. It's like, okay, I'm done with you. Back over to Agrippa. You can see it here. And as he was saying these things in a loud voice, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind, and your great learning is driving you out of your mind. You're overeducated. That's a new one. Uh, Paul, you're too smart, but you're crazy. Paul says, basically, I'm not crazy, and everything I say is true, and I'm done with you. Be quiet. Back over to Agrippa. You can see it here. Uh, But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. All right, done. For the king knows, and I'm back to the king. And don't talk anymore, Festus. Back to the king. For the king knows about these things. And to him, I speak boldly. And the crowd said, oh. Remember the juxtaposition, pomp and circumstance, purple robes, gold. And who is this two-year prison with just mere uh, white prisoner robes and, and handcuffs to look at the king boldly and say, I proclaim to you boldly, king. This is amazing boldness. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. He's telling him smart because these things have not been done in a corner. The events of Jesus didn't happen on an island that no one knows. Everybody here in the whole Middle East knows that this happened. And so we get to uh, reaction number two. Reaction one was that interruption by Festus. Reaction two is an avoidance of the truth by Agrippa. So back to him, and I'm speaking to you because nothing's happened in the corner. 27, if you're reading 23 and want to hear like Paul's, like he leads up to that the Christ was suffer, that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim both light to people to our Gentiles. You can jump to 27 and hear how Paul brings it home in 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Come on, believe in Jesus. And here's the avoidance. So Paul says to him boldly, I know that you've heard about these things. Don't you believe? Don't you believe, King Agrippa? Agrippa, a politician for at least 10 years, knows how to get around things, and he just says, in a manner, the crowd gasped, what's he going to say? Believe, believe, and he says this. Do you think in a short time you could persuade me to be a Christian? He evades, avoids, I should say, uh, this petition to believe in Jesus. In this short of time, do you think you can convert me to be a Christian? And Paul answers him, uh, I want you and I want everyone to be a Christian, Agrippa. That's pretty bold. Like he's still talking to the king directly. You can see it in verse 29. Paul said, whether short or long, in a short time or a long time, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am. That's a Christian. Except for these chains, meaning these chains look like I'm a slave, but I'm not a slave. Everyone here is a slave. You need to break off your shackles and chains of sin to slavery and become like I am, free and a believer in Christ. So I want everybody to become a Christian, which brings us to another little application for evangelism. Even in here, we see two rejections of Paul. One, by Festus, you're crazy. The other guy, 
I'm not going to become a Christian for that presentation. I got other things. You're going to be rejected too. People are going to think you're crazy. People are going to say they got better things to do. You're going to be rejected. Paul was rejected by Roman governors and officials. You will be too, but it does not mean stop. Be like Paul and says, okay, well, I still want everyone to become a believer in Christ. And if you're rejected, pray for them like crazy. God, save them even though I didn't know how to say it right or, or they just weren't moved here yet or whatever it is. Save them anyway. Let me be the one. God, save their soul. You want to pray like crazy that this would happen. And then as we move into uh, reactions, interruptions and reactions, we see the third reaction, which is, you know, back in the green room. It's all, Agrippa's like, I'm done with this. Everybody, let's go over here to the green room. Over there's the green room in the corner. And they, they have this little conversation. You can see verse 30, and the king rose. Maybe he's just ticked off that all this has kind of come to a head and like, Paul, I ain't listening to you anymore. The king rose, the governor Rose, Desphestus, and Bernice, that's his king's half-sister, or whatever it is, and they all went with him, and they withdrew. And they're sitting there, and they have this third little reaction, which is an, an admission, which is like, the admission is basically is this. Paul should be free. Whoa, it's a shame he appealed to Caesar. He should be free. He doesn't deserve to die. You can see it here. Verse 30, and the king arose and the governor, they went there. And verse 31, when they were withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. And, and, and what Agrippa is saying is basically, um, I can't stop this. Paul appealed to Caesar, and if I were to stop it and short circuit the appeal to Caesar, that would cost me, you know, maybe my life, certainly my position, and I'm not giving up that. But he's free. It's a shame he appealed to Caesar. And here we see the third kind of reaction here, uh, which is an admission that Paul actually is totally innocent and he shouldn't be killed. Now, as we finish chapter 26, from 22 to 26, we've seen Paul in five trials. And what we've seen is uh, over these course of Paul's kind of two years of being on trial, we've seen Paul in two lights. Luke has painted him in two lights. One as a defendant and second as a witness. And as a defendant, um, he's been a stellar citizen. Uh, He has before Felix explained that he believed that Jesus is a continuation of Moses and the prophets and that he's not guilty of apostasy. He has before Festus said that he's not an anarchist, but that he's actually loyal to his Roman citizenship. And even before Agrippa here, he says that all I I can do is be obedient to Jesus' voice and commission. So he's been a good citizen. He's answered all their questions correctly. And they have, uh, after they've heard them, realized he's innocent. So in the first kind of light that he's been painted is um, that he has been a good defendant and a good citizen. The second thing that we've seen as he's pointed here is not just a defendant on trial, but also a witness. God's witness to a totally different host of people as as an evangelizer. And and we could see a lot, but there's at least two places where Luke gives us a lot of information. One, in his interaction with Felix and Drusilla from a few weeks ago. And two, this, this confrontation with Agrippa. And in both of those, he's bold. With Felix, he tells Felix, who's just a wicked sinner and living in all kind of unrighteousness, he convinces him, Luke tells us, with three specific things. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. Boldly, over the course of two years, continually preaches the gospel to Felix, calling him to repentance. It doesn't work, that we know of. But also, here... Uh, in public, not just in private with Felix, but in public with King Agrippa. He wasn't a coward in front of all the pomp and circumstance, but instead he told that king to bow his knee to the real King Jesus, and he appeals to Agrippa to come to know Christ and receive Jesus, the king's salvation. And so as we look at this, we should realize a couple things. Like Paul, we also have been commissioned by Jesus, John twenty twenty one, to preach the gospel. And so let's be bold like Paul to preach the gospel to people whether private or public, in any circumstance, lovingly and boldly, let's preach the gospel. Two, like Paul, let's also beg and petition others to repent, as it says, and turn from God and bear fruit with keeping repentance. Paul boldly always told them that they need to, as it says in verse uh, 20, to repent and turn to God. Uh, it's, it's always right for us to tell people that they are called by God to repent of their sins, to turn to God and receive forgiveness of sins, and then lay out the precious benefits of the gospel. And lastly is this. Like Paul, uh, we should continue in the mission, like Paul does, until we die or Jesus comes in his second coming to rescue us.
We are called to do this for the rest of our life. So let's be obedient witnesses into this world that we've been given and tell people about Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for this time that we've had to be able to study your word. Um, and though it's lengthy, I pray that it hasn't been too long to where uh, people weren't able to receive all of the truth from your word. And also, Lord, uh, they, were, they were able to uh, see the goodness of the gospel laid out by Paul, that we have forgiveness of sins, and that we have now been invited into, among the people, uh, a place in your family. And I pray these rich benefits would overwhelm our soul, cause us to have great affection towards Jesus, and also put us on a path towards wanting to be a faithful witness uh, and to the people that you've called us to tell about Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to a time of the Lord's Supper where we celebrate that we have been forgiven by Jesus and that we are Christ followers. So if you're a believer in Jesus, this time's for you. Come forward, get the bread, get the cup, come back. And we'll celebrate the richness of being a family as we take it together, uh, celebrating the the Lord's Supper, uh, remembering the good news together that Christ has saved us all. If you're not a believer in Jesus, um, this time is not for you. Just sit and observe and you'll have a tangible, uh, audible example of the good news before you. And your job this morning is to see and hear the gospel as we take the Lord's Supper and believe. Taking the Lord's Supper does not save. It is just a reminder that we have been saved by remembering Jesus' body and his blood broken and shed for us. And so the Lord's Supper is a time for us to remember that and celebrate and worship. So uh, come forward whenever you're ready. You can receive it. You have this whole song if you need to take a few moments to think and pray and come back and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together.